Okay, well this morning we are uh, continuing in our series in 1 Peter, and we are in 1 Peter chapter 3, so I want to invite you to turn with me there in your Bibles, and um, as you do that, I want to ask you to stand with me as we give our attention to God's Word. 1 Peter 3, and we're going to be reading verses uh, 8 through it's 18. Yeah. Let's listen to God's word. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This is God's word. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Oh God, would you bless now uh, your word. Open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds. Please speak the good news of Christ into us, we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Well, David Brooks is a, um, an author, a columnist, a, a journalist, and uh, I came across this week a TED Talk he had given a couple of years back where David Brooks talked about the difference between what he called resume virtues and eulogy virtues. And resume virtues are the things you put on your resume, of course, your accomplishments, your skills, the things you're good at. And um, the eulogy virtues are the things that you hope people will say about you at your funeral when your friends and loved ones are there and and I guess you're not really there. <laughs> and uh, David Brooks said, we all know instinctively that the eulogy virtues are the ones that we should care about. But we spend the vast majority of our time thinking about our resume virtues. He said this, he said, we all know that eulogy virtues are more important than the resume ones, but our culture and our educational system spends more time teaching the skills and strategies you need for career success than the qualities you need to radiate that sort of inner light. 
Many of us are clearer on how to build an external career than on how to build inner character. But if you live for external achievement, years pass and the deepest parts of you go unexplored and unstructured. It is easy to slip into a self-satisfied moral mediocrity. You figure as long as you're not obviously hurting anybody and people seem to like you, you must be okay. But you end up living with an unconscious boredom, separated from the deepest meaning of life and the highest moral joys. What David Brooks is, is talking about uh, is a topic that is incredibly relevant in our, even more so now than a few years ago when he said these words. What he's really talking about is character. He, he's talking about the difference between who you are and what you do. He's talking about character. He's describing a reality that the Bible endorses, and I think we all kind of know instinctively that who you are externally is only a reflection of, of who you are on the inside. Or um, who you are externally, the way that you interact with the world, um, is simply a reflection of your character. A reflection of, as one person said it, who you are when no one is looking. And we all know this. Uh, who you are will drive what you do. But we're living through a time where that reality, even though we know it, has been mostly ignored in our world. And I think this kind of corporate freakout moment that our country is walking through is really a reflection of the reality that we have ignored character. We've ignored character because as we've gone through this national or even global crisis and we're not really rising to the challenge um, we're all kind of freaking out in very predictable ways. Who we are on the inside is coming out. And in this passage, Peter is showing us a path forward. He's showing us that the solution to the chaos of the world that we live in, and I think we could say especially the, the anxiety and animosity that we are w witnessing right now, the solution is not winning the shouting match. The solution, rather, is Christian character. And I think we have to say that that's not super popular today. I mean, in general, the idea that you should be a good person, I guess, is popular. But um, I also this week watched a fascinating interview with a guy who was one of the early executives at Facebook. And uh, his name, I'm going to try to pronounce this, Shamat Palahapatiya, I think, is his name. Uh, he is a billionaire, according to the Google. Um, he worked at Facebook at the right time, made a bunch of money, cashed out, and um, has started something else. And he's now actually very critical of, of the technology that he was a part of building. And uh, he was giving an interview for MBA students in a, in a forum for MBA students at Stanford University. And he, he's talking about how um, we're at this point now where we have created tools where he says we, that are literally ripping apart the social fabric of how our society works. He says the short-term dopamine-driven loops that we have created are destroying the fabric of society. No civil discourse, no cooperation, misinformation, mistruth. 
this is a global problem and we are in a really bad state of affairs right now. Okay, this is a quote from the person who helped create this technology. And so the interviewer says, well, what do you suggest we do about this problem? And his response is, get the blank money. Get the money. If things are going poorly, all you can do is get control yourself. He says, this is the reality. There are 150 people who run the world, and money drives them. For better or for worse, without capital, you are irrelevant. With capital, you are powerful. And then you decide uh, what to do with it. He says, I want the money, I will play the game, and I will win. And then the interviewer says, how do you keep yourself from being corrupted by that level of power? And his response was, I have no idea. It's a pretty startling admission. He's really insightful in his critique of what is going on in our culture. And yet his solution is just essentially more of the same problem. I don't trust you, but I trust myself. So I'm going to get the power through the money, and I'm going to say what we're all going to do now. Jesus has a better idea than that. Uh, Jesus has a better idea. It doesn't require massive amounts of money, and it's definitely not going to be a quick solution. But it's far more powerful, and it will change the world, and we know that because it's already happened on a global scale once over. And we're now entering a phase where I think that what Peter is telling us here, what Jesus is telling us through Peter, has the power to do the same thing over again. And here's what Peter is saying. The thing that will change the world, the thing that will overcome animosity and division in our time, is countercultural Christian character. Countercultural Christian character. Character that focuses more on who you are than what you do. But it is counterculture or countercultural, or it is at the very least counterintuitive, because Christian character is not what your football coach would tell you it is. Like wake up earlier, buckle down, get to the gym, and just make it happen. That is not how Christian character works. Christian character is bearing the fruit of the gospel in your life. We've been saying over and over again that Peter's central message is that if you are in Christ, your life is marked by his life. And so Christian character is living more and more the life that Christ lived. Christian character is looking at Christ and seeing what he has done for you and being changed by what he has done for you and then letting what he has done for you bear fruit in the way that you live. And so the common thread in developing Christian character is understanding what Christ has done for you. What has Christ done for you? Well, in Ephesians 5, Paul summarizes it like this. He says, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Christ loved you and he gave himself up for you. That's what he has done for you. And as you become more and more like him, your life is marked more and more by his life. And so he's saying that just as Christ has loved you and given himself up for you, that Christian character looks like loving each other and giving ourselves up for others. And that's exactly what Peter is saying in this passage. In an 
we live in a world in an anxious time that is um, where where Christians have a tremendous opportunity because when our world is freaking out, the simple act of loving each other and not needing to be right about everything suddenly stands out in, in stark contrast. This is what Christian character that is resilient in an anxious time looks like. And so I want to dive into this passage and look at the nature of Christian character. And the first thing that I want you to see, the nature of Christian character, there's really two things that Peter says about the nature of Christian character. The first thing he says is, as Christians, we are to love each other. We are to love each other. He says this in, um, in verse 8. <clears throat> Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. He's saying love each other. And it's great. You can tell Peter's a pastor here because he says finally, but he's only halfway through what he's going to say in this whole book. <laughs> finally, love each other. Um, having unity of mind. It means having a common purpose. He's talking to a congregation of Christians. He's saying have a common mind. Have, a, have common goals. Love the same thing. Have a common purpose together. Um, he says, be sympathetic to one another. To be sympathetic means to experience what somebody else is experiencing. You know, we often talk about sympathy and empathy like they're the same thing, but they're not. Empathy is being able to imagine what somebody else is going through. Sympathy is a deeper reality because it means actually feeling what somebody else is feeling with them. Um, to love each other means to experience what they're going through. Brotherly love and having a tender heart, again, loving other Christians and having a humble mind. He's talking about loving each other. And he's saying that loving each other, to have, to have a humble mind, to, to love requires forgiveness. Uh, to love each other is, is the simplest thing to say. It's the hardest thing to do because uh, people are crazy. <laughs> And we're crazy. And the moment that you try to love somebody else, um, you're confronted with your own inability and your own frustration. And so forgiveness very quickly becomes necessary. Being willing to listen to each other, being corrected by each other. These are characteristics which, when you read them in the Bible, sound very elementary. They sound like the sort of things that you are taught in kindergarten about how to be nice to people. And yet there's nothing common about this way of living. The reality is that there's nothing ordinary about Christians loving each other. Um, every day we see in our lives, we see on the internet, we read about in the news, people just being torn apart, tearing each other down. There's nothing common in the call for Christians to proactively demonstrate love for each other. And so as we stumble through this year that has just been filled with upheaval, can you imagine the effect of a community of Christians who are committed to loving each other? I mean, it's so simple. It's not easy. But it would stand out in stark relief against the backdrop of the news and the social media and the virtue signaling to simply love each other. You know, we've all, I'm sure, had the experience where 
somebody else has made a critical remark, a remark um, about ourselves that was uh, negative, that has um, just stuck with us for days, for weeks, maybe even for longer. Maybe it was something that was said, you know, even unintentionally or in an offhanded way that maybe wasn't even intended, but the criticism of a parent or a boss or a friend can just be incredibly wounding. Can you imagine the inverse also being true? That a word of encouragement or a word of love proactively spoken to a friend or to a spouse might just be the thing to get somebody through the day, the week. So let me just ask you to do this. To think of someone who needs to experience your love this week. Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your children, maybe it's your friend. What would it look like to love that person this week? What would it look like for you to sympathize with that person this week? What would it mean for you to have a humble mind with regard to that person this week? How would you love that person this week? Okay, who is that person? And I want you to actually do it. <laughs> you know, sometimes we think, like, this would be such a nice thing for me to say, and we feel good about ourselves because we thought that it would be nice. Actually do it. <laughs> Send a text, pick up the phone. You can call people on your phones. Did you know that? And, uh, and deliver encouraging words. The first aspect of Christian character is loving each other. But the second aspect of Christian character that Peter highlights in this passage is this. The Christian whose character is being shaped into the image of Jesus is the one who patiently endures suffering. Christian character patiently endures suffering. He says this in verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And then he really continues to kind of reinforce that theme through the next several verses. Christian character looks like patiently suffering, patiently enduring suffering. And notice that Peter is not saying, he's not simply talking about non-retaliation. He's not saying when somebody insults you, just don't say anything back. He's going a step further than that. And he's saying when somebody insults you, when somebody does evil to you, to bless them in response. We're to respond to insult and evil with blessing. To bless means to publicly speak well of someone. Um, what Peter is saying is that the power of the gospel uh, comes into play and it drains evil and anger of their power when we respond to hostility with kindness, with blessing. Uh, it's so counter to our instincts and yet it is so beautiful in action. Um, I don't know if anybody sums this up quite as well as Bono, who is the lead singer of U2. I remember when I was a college pastor, I thought I'm going to quote this rock star and um, I was so excited to quote Bono and this uh, woman, young woman in our ministry said, oh, my dad really likes them. So, <laughs> so maybe consider the, these the words of, of a man who has walked the path of life for a long time. 
Um, Bono says this. He says, you see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what, what you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics, every action is met by an equal and opposite reaction. He says, it's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. What you do will come back to you, and yet, along comes this idea called grace that defies reason and logic. Love interrupts the consequences of your actions, which in my case is a very good thing because I have done a lot of stupid things. When somebody is unkind, our response is to make them feel what they have done to us. The Bible and Bono agree that that is natural, and yet the power of the gospel is displayed in draining evil and anger of its power by repaying evil with blessing. Karen Jobes, in her commentary on this passage, uh, says that one day in class, she asked her students if they had any practical real-life examples of this sort of a response, and she said one of the students told a story about a soldier, a Christian soldier, living in the barracks in the army, and this soldier, being a committed Christian, every night before bed, would get in his bunk, and he would read the Bible, and he would pray. And he said there was, uh, you know, a lot of friendly joking about that, but there was one soldier in particular who was incredibly hostile uh, to this young man's Christian faith. And he said this other soldier would mock him relentlessly, day after day, the same thing, and yet the soldier continued every night as they, um, you know, as he got into bed, he would sit and he would pray and he would read the Bible until uh, one one evening, in just absolute frustration, this other soldier took a pair of dirty, uh, muddy combat boots and threw them at this, at this, uh, at this young Christian. And uh, that was the end of it. They went to bed, and uh, the hostile soldier woke up in the morning with his boots cleaned and shined and sitting at the foot of his bed ready for inspection. And without a word, just drained the hostility out of the entire situation. And uh, the student telling the story said, it wasn't long after that that several soldiers in that barracks actually became Christians themselves. It's no surprise to you that we are living through a time of incredible tension, incredible animosity. You don't really need me to bring that to your attention, but I think what we do need to hear is this, that the power to overcome the anxiety and tension and animosity will not come from mere words, no matter how true right or persuasive they may seem. It will not come through words. Grace overcomes hatred as Christians patiently endure wrongdoing and bless in return. You may have seen this in the news. On June 2nd of this year, as racial tensions were mounting in our country, and protests erupted and things were heating up. An angry mob of protesters prepared to confront police in Fayetteville, North Carolina. 
And as this mob marched down the street, police officers in full riot gear came out to confront them. And I watched the video of this this week. You can see it's not going to go well. And then suddenly about 50 police officers take a knee. Take a knee in front of these Black Lives Matter protesters holding signs and shouting. And there's this moment of silence as the police officers take a knee. And then the protesters also take a knee. And then after a moment of silence, they get up and the protesters come across and shake hands and give hugs to the police officers. And the crowd begins to disperse. That is beautiful. I'm sure it happened in many more places. And let me be quick to say, I know that as soon as I say that, somebody's thinking, well, that doesn't mean they agree with everything Black Lives Matter stands for. I know, I'm not saying that. But words are not going to solve the animosity in our culture. That's not the point. Proverbs 15 says a gentle answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. And if we're going to be people who claim the name of Jesus at some point, friends, we're going to have to believe that the words he speaks to us are true. The nature of Christian character. Secondly, I want you to see in this passage the test of Christian character. How would we know if we're actually living like this? Well, Peter goes on, and in verses 14 through 16, he He talks about giving an answer or a reason for the hope of our faith. And these are words that if you have been in the church for any period of time, you've heard quoted, usually in isolation. Always be prepared to give a defense, to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the hope that you have within you. And we often, Christian circles, you know, kind of cite this as a proof text for the importance of of apologetics, of defending the Christian faith, and it is that. But we have to see in the context of this passage, what Peter's talking about is not like debating atheists on the internet. What he's talking about is living a, a Christian life that is so distinctive that it catches people off guard. And they ask questions and they say, why is it that you live like this? Why are you so filled with love that you don't repay insult with insult? Christians living out the sort of character he's talking about, loving each other, responding to insult with blessing. Peter says the test is, will pe- do people ask you, uh, how is it possible that you're living this sort of a lifestyle? So here's the test for us. Has anybody asked you that recently? Or corporately, would we say as a, as a church in America that the reputation that we have is people are just wondering how we can be such an incredible blessing to our world? I think we would have to say sadly that that is not our reputation. We have to confess that living in an anxious and angry time, Christians seem just about as anxious and angry as anybody else. And yet, and yet, this presents us with an incredible opportunity. Um, Scott Sauls, who's a pastor in Nashville and an author, has a book that just came out 
called A Gentle Answer, and it's beautiful and wonderful. And in it, he says this. He says, In our cultural moment, outrage has become more expected than surprising, more normative than odd, more encouraged than discouraged, more rewarded than rejected. Outrage has become the norm. And the opportunity to bear witness to the gospel lurks behind every conversation when we live in that sort of a world. We have plenty of opportunities every week to bear witness to the truth of the gospel by simply responding with a gentle word, um, to be witnesses to the gospel. The word witness, I don't know what that sounds like to you. The Bible talks about I think, I think it's probably true to say the Bible talks about witness less more than it talks about evangelism. And, and when we, we think of the word witness, we think of like knocking on doors. Hi, I'm here to share you know, a message with you about Jesus. <laughs> it's just weird, right? I, think about what a witness is. If you, if you think about what the word witness means, you know, the other context we think of a witness is somebody who has experienced something answering questions about what they have witnessed. That's what, that's what Peter's talking about here. Bearing witness to the gospel in an anxious and hostile culture. John Perkins uh, is a pastor. He's 89 years old. He was a um, uh, sort of an icon during the civil rights era. Um, and um, John Perkins says of this moment that we're living through, he says this is the first generation to view uh, to this is the first generation to turn hate into an asset. Outrage has become not something that we just feel and try to hold in but something that we actually actively wield against others. Um in an age when hate is an asset and outrage is expected, Christians have a tremendous opportunity to be witnesses to the gospel. And John Perkins knows what he's talking about when he, when he says this because he has endured a tremendous amount of suffering. John Perkins, um, his mother died when he was a baby. His father abandoned their family and his brother was the victim of um, police brutality growing up in Mississippi. And um, as, a, as a leader during the civil rights movement, John Perkins uh, was beaten, was arrested on many occasions. He knows what it is to suffer. And yet I read this account, uh, uh, an incident in the life of John Perkins that, that I thought was just so amazing I wanted to share it with you. A theologian named Charles Marsh talks about visiting Perkins in the 80s in Jackson, Mississippi, and they spent the day together and uh, and they and they talked about uh, theology and they talked about Jesus and then they um, stopped on their way back to where they were going to go their separate ways and uh, they had dessert and there over dessert theologian Charles Marsh uh, said he felt welling up within him this need to confess his family's uh, latent and well overt racism to John Perkins, this man who had been such a, a, a tremendous figure during the civil rights movement. And um, he, he, he said that um, 
His family had been committed to racists. In particular, his grandmother, a devoted Christian, was a staunch racist who believed that slaves were better off um, enslaved than free. And um, Marsh said, I told him so much that I felt like I had, had come clean with a dirty secret and that Perkins had become my confessor. When I stopped talking finally, I braced for the worst. What would this man who had fought so hard against the evil of racism say in response? And he said, John Perkins looked at me and he said, does your grandmother like blueberries? He said, what? And John Perkins began to describe the many ways that he loves to eat blueberries. And he said, you know, I have blueberry bushes in my backyard. And when you drop me off at my home, I'm going to get a bag of blueberries from my refrigerator. And I want you to take them and give them to your grandmother as a gift from me. A gentle word turns away wrath. An act of blessing in response to an insult is far more effective and points to the hope that we have in Jesus. So the question, friends, is how are we going to do that? How are you going to get that sort of response to come out of you in the heat of the moment? And so the third thing I want you to see in this passage is the power for Christian character. If the problem that we are living through in many ways is a problem of character. Their solution is not buckle down, try harder, wake up earlier, you know, eat less, lose weight, be better. The solution is to look to Jesus. Love each other, endure hardship and suffering. Nothing will reveal the nature of our character faster than the experience of suffering. That's so true that the book of Hebrews says that Jesus himself had to be made perfect through what he suffered. Nothing will reveal the reality of who we truly are than suffering. But verse 18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christian character is never about mere willpower, which isn't to say it doesn't require heart or willpower, but it's not about simply gritting it out. It's about looking to Jesus and understanding more fully what Jesus has done for you that we might reflect externally what is true of us on the inside. The Bible doesn't say endure suffering because it's going to toughen you up, it'll be good for you. It says endure suffering because Christ also suffered in order to bring you to God. The power for Christian character is not in us. The power for Christian character is through Christ in us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prayed, Father, knowing that the cross was lying ahead of him, Jesus prayed, Father, if it be possible, would you take this cup of suffering away from me? If there's a plan B, can we please go with that? But then he said, not your will, but not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. And so he goes to the cross and he suffers the desertion from his friends and from God himself. And he, he suffers death. And he endures it all in trusting himself to God for you to take your place, to take my place. 
here's the incredible truth of Christianity. Jesus says, if you want to be truly free, you must give your life away. Those who lose their lives will gain them. Peter says here, for though he was being put to death in the flesh, he was being made alive in the spirit. The tremendous irony of the gospel is this, when we lose our lives, then we are truly alive. It is in the act of suffering that we become more like Jesus, when we do the unimaginable, then we experience that it is God at work in us and through us. Corrie Ten Boom, uh, you may know, is a, uh, was a Dutch woman whose family hid uh, Jews in Holland during the uh, the Holocaust until her family was discovered and she was sent to a concentration camp where her sister died. And after the war was over, um, Corey Ten Boom went back to Germany to proclaim forgiveness to the German people. And so night after night, she went from venue to venue and, and talked about the importance of forgiveness until one evening she was speaking in the basement of a church in Germany and after her talk, she was horrified because one of the men who was lingering around, obviously waiting for an opportunity to speak with her, she recognized as one of the guards, one of her guards at the Ravensbrück concentration camp. And she waited, this man waited until there was nobody else there, and then he came up to her and he said, to her, he said, Fräulein, that was an impressive talk. How good it is to know, as you say, that all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fräulein, will you forgive me? And um, Corey Ten Boom said, I remember this man. He had been one of the cruelest guards. Could I just with a word forgive him and, and wipe away all that he had done? My sister had died there. But she said he stood there with his hand held out, and I don't know if it lasted for a few seconds. She said it, it seemed like hours to me as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. She said I had to do it. I knew that the message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. But forgiveness is not an emotion. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. Then she reached out her hand to the former guard, and she says something incredible took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. I had never known love so intensely as I did then, but even then I realized it was not my love. It was the power of the Holy Spirit through me. Friends, this is the gospel. Jesus has loved you and given himself up for you. 
and he is at work by the power of his spirit to make your life look more and more like his life. And that means that we are to be people who love each other and who patiently endure suffering. It's what our world needs right now, but it is not up to us to muster the willpower on our own. We only need to look to Jesus. He loves you. He suffered for you. And he invites you into a new way of life, a way of giving yourself up that you might find real life through him. Would you pray with me? Oh God, these are truly startling words if we take them seriously. Jesus, would the reality of what you have done for us so overwhelm us that we might take your words seriously. Instead of, well, but qualifying everything to the point of meaninglessness, God, would you help us to be the people that you have called us to be? Our world is hurting. But we want to follow you. We want to bring hope. We want to bring light. And so we thank you for the words of 1 Peter. More than that, we thank you, Jesus, for your cross, for your resurrection, and that you now rule and reign. Would you rule and reign in our lives as well? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.